everyone. This is Brunch with Brent. Uh, joining me today is Daniel Foray. Daniel, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. It's good to hear your voice. Um, for those who don't know you, I think many, many do. Uh, I, as the founder of Elementary OS um, and also a regular co-host on User Error. And for those who haven't dove into user error yet. Uh, can you give us a bit of a sense of what, what goes on there? Yeah, I think my my favorite way to describe user error is, is like, it's like if you got your nerd friends and went out to the pub and then just talked about whatever random stuff you thought up, like that's kind of what the podcast is. <laughs> <laughs> How could that not be lovely, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it seems like you guys have a lot of fun. And joining you there is uh, Joe Resington and Popey as well, who I've I've had a chat with here on Brunch as well. Um, and I don't know how you guys do it, but there's this dynamic between the three of you that's just so lovely to listen to. Um, how does that feel on your end? Uh, I appreciate you saying that. I, I think it's good too. I, you know, um, we've obviously met in, in real life before and, and actually had silly conversations in a pub. So, uh, it, it's fun to see that, um, we can do a show with that same dynamic and we all get along really well and we're friends. So, um, it, it's just fun. It doesn't feel like, work to me in any way. <laughs> that always means you're doing the right thing, I think. I don't think I know the story of how that all started. Like you mentioned that you did get a chance to be in person together and to be at a pub and do kind of the same thing. Was that before it started or after or, or how did that sort of all come to be? Yeah. So uh, I've actually known Alan for quite a while um, because I'd gone to a few different uh, canonical sponsored conferences. Um, I used to go to the uh, Ubuntu Developer Summit when that was a thing. Okay. And then um, also uh, I've gone to a couple of the Snap events and uh, some other things like that. And then um, I've, I've met up with him at other events like uh, we went to uh, Linux App Summit and uh, I don't remember if I've seen him at Guadec, but I, you know, we just end up going to a lot of the same conferences. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, I met Joe at, uh, Linux S Northwest, but, uh, I've only got to see him in person once. <laughs> that I guess was the, the previous one last year, uh, I would imagine, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think probably you and I just missed each other. Uh, I, I flew in late. I actually missed most of the conference last year and I, I, I think you and I just missed each other. We didn't, we haven't got a chance to sort of meet in person yet, which, I was looking forward to this year, but uh, we'll see what happens. Um, but it, it, yeah, I, I agree with you in that meeting in person, uh, especially when you're co-hosting a podcast together uh, of that style is so essential, isn't it? Yeah, it's so different. I think uh, when you interact with people online and you kind of only see their work persona, I guess, and then once you meet them in person, um, there's just a different level of connection you have with them. And I think that's why it's so important to do like these kind of conferences and things is you, if you're going to work with that person in the future in any capacity, it always helps to have like some level of like camaraderie with them and, and you know, know that, um, we're all working in like a common interest or I don't know if there's like a lofty way to put it or anything other than just like knowing that you guys are cool with each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It goes a long way. Um, for sharing ideas and, and, and sharing space and, uh, obviously some audio too. So yeah, I, I definitely support that anytime you can do it. Um, you did mention that you had met Alan quite a little while ago through some Ubuntu related stuff. I would imagine those were some of the earlier years of elementary OS. Is that sort of the, the beginning of when you got to meet him and start all of that? Yeah. And even before that, and, um, I, I'm not sure if a whole lot of people know, but I used to do uh, contract work, uh, for Ubuntu, like during the unity years. Okay. And, um, so like, I, I'm not sure how much of that work still exists in Ubuntu, but a lot of the, uh, iconography and things like that. And I worked with, um, Matthew Paul Thomas on the, uh, ubiquity, uh, design for like choosing the different kinds of installation setups. And so I, I did a decent amount of design work, um, for canonical way back in the day. Nice. I had no idea. And I, I suppose that makes a lot of sense now. And I would imagine informed a lot of what you're doing these days. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, I guess in some ways it was almost uh, the other way around where um, I started doing like elementary icons and then I was it was at a time when um, 
Ubuntu was really looking at their major rebranding shift. Like they were going from like the whole brown and orange kind of thing and then mm-hmm. um, into more of the purple and, and orange stuff. And um, one of the uh, lead designers at the time, uh, David Siegel, reached out to me and he was like, hey, I like what you're doing with the uh, elementary icon stuff. Um, do you think you could make a version for Ubuntu and uh, propose that? And so I did. And then nice. it was kind of like through that that um, I ended up getting to do a lot of work in Ubuntu and kind of like influence things a little bit. Well, that sounds super fun. Uh, it, it seems to me as well that it uh, sort of fits with what I've seen as one of your personal themes, which is just uh, rich collaboration throughout. Does that feel like that's a thread that makes sense? Yeah, definitely. And I, I'm really happy to um, be able to to be a part of a bunch of different things. And and like over the years, um, kind of getting started with like the Gnome Do and Docky people and um, doing, you know, elementary. And then um, I've uh, done some work, uh, just a little bit of design work for like Martin Wimpress on the um, Ubuntu Mate stuff. And um, so it's fun to just kind of get involved in different places and and. I think it is kind of like, you know, everybody tries to make it that everybody's competing with each other, but we're all kind of more of like a family and and everybody wants to work together and and make everything Mm -hmm. better for everybody. Yeah, that's what I'm learning more and more as I get a bit more integrated into our sort of Linux and open source community is that it it definitely feels massive and has a lot of people in it. And that's a wonderful thing. But at the same time, somehow we've managed to make it feel like a little close family at the same time. Uh, And I find that really impressive and also uh, just really cool. Um, And it sounds like you're echoing that sentiment exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about sort of your design background, because it seems to me like that's not necessarily, you know, when we think of contributing to projects and things like that, uh, we often quickly go to sort of the developer standpoint. But um, can you walk us a little bit through your history? I know you're really strong in design. And and so where did that start for you? And how did that move into the software world? Uh, I guess if I had to like really point out like the first time I started getting into like visual design stuff. It was, um, as a kid, uh, my uncle was into like uh, game development and he loved the programming side, but he hated like sprite work and stuff like that. And so he kind of would like mm. push it off on the me a little bit and go, Hey man, you know, if you can come up with some cool artwork, like we can make a game together. And, um, nice. <laughs> yeah. So I started doing some of that kind of stuff and um, just trying to like learn, you know, how to do spriting for for that kind of stuff. And then um, I ended up from there kind of um, continuing some of that like modding on different games and stuff. There was this game uh, called Little Fighter um, and it uh, it was interesting in the way that you could easily go in and change all the sprites. And everything was like scripted for all the action. So it wasn't that hard to like do custom characters and stuff like that. So I really got into that and like modding that kind of thing. And then when uh, Windows XP was um, kind of the big thing, then it seemed like there was a decent modding community there around like, uh, I can't remember what all the little extensions were, but there was like things for like docs and adding shadows to the windows. And like there was a bunch of Windows XP mods out. And so um, I was always really interested in that kind of like modding visual design kind of stuff. And then um, when I saw um, Corora Linux with the Compiz XGL demo mm. and the 3D spinning cube, like <laughs> yes. that was for me, it was like, oh my God, this is the ultimate playground and, and getting into that stuff. And then um, starting to see that like, oh, well... In Windows, you can kind of change the way that stuff looks, but it always acts like Windows. And then in this new kind of Linux playground, like not only can you change the way stuff looks, but you can change the way it acts. And that's like a whole different level because you're getting into like user experience design and not just visual design. Right. So that was really big for me was kind of discovering like how flexible desktop Linux is and and getting to kind of actually move into not just how things look, but how they work too. It sounds like a nice gradual progression that 
has a lot of space to keep you really fascinated and in- interested in in continuing the learning curve. That sounds really, really great. You mentioned sort of running into Corora there and then having Linux sort of open up the world for you. How did you first get introduced to Linux or even the open source concept? Was it someone who shared that with you or how did that go for you? You know, know what it was? It was, uh, do you remember dig.com? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, so it was on dig and I can't remember if it just popped up in like the technology, I almost called it the technology subreddit. That's how like gone dig is. It was like the technology section of dig or whatever. And and, uh, yeah, it just popped up there one day as like, oh, you could do this and you could just put this thing on a CD and like you don't even install it or anything. And, you know, I I knew like what an operating system was because I had technical family members and like the idea of like, oh, well, you know, you're installing a different version of, of Windows or, you know, we knew some people had Macs, and so I, I got like what that idea was, but um, I, I don't think I had ever heard of Linux before that. So did you just kind of download it and throw it on a CD and you knew enough to sort of figure that out, or do you have a mentor sort of helping you out, either online or off? No, it was totally, it was just, um, you know, knowing enough to burn a CD and then popping it in and, and going, oh, you know, this is crazy, and then like kind of diving into it, and then I was reading more about it and found out that it was built on Gentoo. And I was like, oh, what's Gentoo? And I looked into that and I, mm. I downloaded the whole like <laughs> Gentoo manual and printed it out in like this wow. big spiral binder. <laughs> that sounds pretty dedicated. And to start near, near Gentoo is quite the adventure as well. Yeah. Well, it was, you know, I had no idea. So it, it, I think it was such a learning experience, though, to like set up a Gentoo install, it, you know, when you're starting from from nothing and you're like, wow, this is really hard. But um, you like learn, oh, OK, well, there's so many different components in an operating system. And, and you're like, OK, I need um, something to manage the network and I need something to do the login screen and I need a desktop environment and I need a package manager. And you kind of realize like, oh, OK, like this is more complicated than it seems on the surface. And there's so many different choices you can make. And then, um, what I actually, uh, got me into Ubuntu was finding out, I, I was trying to work on like, a, an updates manager for Gentoo. Cause I was like, this is really complicated. Um, and I, I didn't really have any development chops. So I was just kind of like trying to jam something together in Python. And I don't think I ever got very far, but um, and then I saw that Ubuntu had an updates manager, and I was like, "That's it! I'm switching to Ubuntu. I don't even know what it is." But I'm. But it sounds like you kind of tripped over an accidental like initiation into really learning the different pieces uh, that it takes to put a distribution together, uh, and it sounds like that happened early on for you, uh, which isn't <laughs> isn't everybody's sort of path into Linux. But I I would imagine that would. Uh, inform what you're doing today in a really meaningful way. Yeah, because for me, it was about um, figuring out how to put together a different operating system. It wasn't really about just using the operating system. And so um, going through the stuff with Gentoo was, I wasn't intimidated by it all because my, my goal wasn't to just like pop something in and have it up and running. It was to build something, you know? It sounds like you were looking for a playground at that time. Yeah, and, absolutely. And having fallen onto a Gen 2 was totally, totally fine. Mm-hmm. And, and really fun, actually, I would imagine. Yeah, challenging, challenging for sure, but but fun. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a wild world with how, how complex a Gen 2 install can get. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take your word for it. I will say I'm, I'm uninitiated there, but, uh, but everyone I know who've, who have dove into trying a Gen 2 install uh, have really have always said they've really benefited from it. So uh, that's that's again another sort of check mark in the Gen 2 learning uh, sphere, I suppose. What was the progression then into forming elementary? Because it sounds like you moved from there to Ubuntu because it sounded easier in some ways or had some features that you wanted, but. Uh, how did that evolve for you into making something of your own? Yeah, so uh, I think from there, um, I, I'm not sure how much I was doing like icons and stuff before I switched to Ubuntu. I, I, 
I can't really remember, but I, I know that uh, once I got on Ubuntu, I think that's when things really kicked off more. And I, I was doing a lot more uh, work with iconography. And um, then I got involved somehow um, with uh, Gnome Do. And uh, there was another one. It was called uh, Glubis or something like that. And it was like a preview app. That's a great name. <laughs> yeah. It was like, there was so much wild stuff happening at that time. Um, and uh, so I was just kind of getting involved with different teams that were doing interesting things that were like, ooh, I want that app. And then turns out I can talk to the people that are making it and maybe get some things that I want built in there. What a gift of open source, right? That you could reach out to the people just making it. Um, I think that's really great. Yeah, it's su- such a wild, such a wild concept. And And I think what's really cool is that that's still the way it is today. It wasn't like, like at that time, it was the kind of this weird pioneer wild west time. Um, I think compared to now. Um, but I think that it's still the case that you can just kind of get involved with stuff and start talking to people who are making things. And it's always awesome to see, um, when you're using something like on GitHub nowadays, and then the author just like, will come in and like leave a comment and be like, Oh, you well, you're having this problem because you did this. And if you try this configuration, it's like, Whoa, that guy made that thing. And he took the time to come like comment <laughs> on my thing. Like, that is so great. Um, and also I think, and you will obviously have more personal experience than me on this one, but I think that's an essential part of all of this as well. Um, there's, I would imagine from your perspective, some close connection that you get with users that maybe you wouldn't get if you were behind some kind of some kind of uh, wall of, you know, a developer wall or a designer wall. Um, I, do you appreciate that most days, that close connection from from the perspective of the person creating? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sometimes it's overwhelming um, because, you know, there's only one of me and like... <laughs> You're not scalable. <laughs> yeah. And it's tough. And, and there's so many people that want really personal help that sometimes I'm just not able to provide. But I think that um, that is super important to me to make sure that people know that, like, if they um, go through the proper channels, that it's not impossible for them to get a hold of someone who's working on that thing and that will talk to them and ask questions and spend time to make sure that they're having a good time. I've had that experience, and it's it, it seems really special uh, when you get that kind of attention. So, uh, But I distracted you there a little bit because you were talking about um, sort of your trajectory into elementary and 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 founding elementary and, and how those ideas started. Let's see. So we're picking up with getting involved with some different uh, open source projects. And then um, I think it was around that time that I had like some kind of ideas about how these things might fit together more and kind of like an idea around how a desktop environment might look. And, um, it, you know, it was kind of crazy at the time. Like I had these like sketches where there was like three docks on each side of the screen and like this one did, uh, devices and this one has your favorites and this one's your apps and they're all, you know, coming in and out of context and then like little other pop-up bubbles and like it was, it was complicated, but it was just like doing some like real exploration about like, if we didn't think about what a a desktop environment is supposed to look like, how would we do it? And, I was doing tons of mockups and looking at uh, different applications and just kind of like trying to throw away all the assumptions and and make something different. And um, one that got a lot of attention was I did some uh, design work related to the file browser Nautilus. And uh, I think it was uh, OMG Ubuntu who kind of picked it up and talked about it. And um, then a, a developer reached out to me and was like, hey, that's really cool. Let's build that. And um, so we made like this big patch set for Nautilus and um, we went to go try to push it upstream. And like at the time, being like a young guy who has no idea how like software development works, um, I was kind of like, I guess, put off because they were like, no, we're not going to merge that. And it was like, why? What the hell? We worked so hard. And, um, it was, you know, like ill considered and the patches were huge and, you know, it, it's totally understandable now from the perspective of like an upstream maintainer, why 
like you need to make sure that stuff you're merging in is like good quality and has like a, a really well considered design direction and fits in with the rest of the application and stuff like that. But um, it was kind of like that thing um, where it was kind of like, okay, well, um, maybe I don't want to kind of leave it up to someone else if they're going to merge in that code. Maybe we should start working on our own stuff. And um, so we we kind of built a little community around doing something different and uh, building a dis- different desktop environment. And um, it just kind of took off from there with with the applications and and um, the desktop environment. And then we went to like, OK, we have all this stuff and we need a way to uh, present it all together to people because these things are all made to fit together. And so uh, doing a distro is kind of the natural progression. And not necessarily an easy decision either, because there's a lot of, um, well, you really got to be committed to make a distribution last long term and uh, last long term it has, right? I think you started that back in, was it 2007-ish around there? Yeah, that's when I started getting involved with... um, like the design stuff and the icons, but we didn't do our first OS release for a while. I think uh, I think we're coming up on nine years now. I think it'll be at the end of this month. That's still impressive, uh, really, when you think about all the work uh, that goes into something like that. I, I think that's worth congratulating, and you should have a, oh, I suppose, virtual party to celebrate. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, uh, I, I don't. You know, I don't even know if we were thinking about that at the time. I don't know if we thought about like how long it would take to do everything we wanted to do. I think we were just kind of like, this is, we want to build some stuff and then just like kept going. But um, it is one of those things where you see when we first registered the App Center project on Launchpad and then how long it Mm. took from when we registered that project to like, okay, now we've done all these different things and different toolkits have come out and we've migrated all our development to GitHub and and it took so long before we actually delivered like the first version of App Center to users. And um, I think that a lot of people maybe um, don't realize that sometimes it takes years to deliver some of these products. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. But there's, and, and I think, this is probably just my assumption, but there's far more work that happens sort of on the on the background that nobody ever sees than than what ends up sort of being shown to users, right? There's a lot of, as you mentioned, oh, yeah. all that setup and ideas and and marketing and all this all this stuff on the back end. Yeah, totally. And um, you know, that's something we tried to uh, expose a little bit more in in blog posts when we're doing something. That's like uh, I think the last one we did is when we did the new design for the login and lock screen. Um, we wrote about because uh, it took us a couple years to to finally ship it, and so we wrote about like why and like all the different um, events that we attended. Like there was a meetup with um, the GNOME design team in London that Cassidy went out to and started talking about all this stuff. And then it was like, these are all the different branches that we've worked on and like all the different concerns about why we wanted to do the redesign. And like, this is why it took us two years, you know, and, and this is why this is what we came up with. So just kind of giving um, people a peek into that process. Yeah, is helpful both for users to understand, well, why does it take so long? But also to understand that they should keep uh, sort of being excited about it because there is stuff happening. And I think the thing that at least many people appreciate about that approach is that it seems to me like you have a really strong, you know, you and the team have a really strong philosophy behind what you're doing. And you kind of stick to that and make it take as long as it takes to make it right. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, sometimes there there is stuff where we're looking at it and we're going, okay, like the first idea we had for this is too ambitious and we're going to have to pivot to something smaller so that we can deliver something sooner. And and so that's, you know, sometimes we do that. What's an example maybe of that? Uh, I would say that like App Center itself is a good example of that because, um, you know, from the very inception of the project, we had this idea of 
like, and, and this is not a novel idea at all, but of, um, you know, we want uh, developers to be able to publish their apps to elementary OS faster than they currently can. Because right now we're, well, I mean, right now, but uh, back then uh, we're waiting, you know, six months uh, or if we're based on an LTS, we're waiting up to two years, you know, before users can get a new version of an app. And that's really not good. Um, but the first version of App Center that we shipped it was just the front end. It was just the package manager. So it didn't have any of that publishing stuff in it. Uh, and it, it took us a while um, and uh, a crowdfunder and a sprint and, and all kinds of stuff before we were actually able to ship the publishing backend. And so, and, and I think we're still kind of working towards that goal because it wasn't really um, until recently where we said, okay, we're going all in on Flatpak. And, um, so even though we have like a publishing backend that functions, uh, to really deliver on what we think App Center should be like, we had to wait for some new technologies to emerge and mature. And, and so, you know, it, it's always evolving and, and sometimes things take a long time. <laughs> I think it just exposes just how difficult some of these problems we're tackling are uh, and maybe difficult is the wrong word but it like you know you mentioned waiting for a technology to come out to make it feel right and to match up with where you were trying to head um, it seems wild maybe that's the only way to put it um, that you know we can have these visions and yet it take lots and lots and lots and lots of effort to get there and years sometimes to see those come to fruition and uh and yet still be completely worth it i imagine you guys still think it's it's completely worth it oh yeah totally and you know it's funny um I don't mean to talk about App Center so much, but it's just something that like it was so <laughs> it's topical com- i guess yeah right? it's so involved and and so complicated but um when we were kind of Going through uh, working on like the app store component of it, something that people kept bringing up was like, well, Ubuntu tried this and it didn't work out. And like, why do you think you could do it? You know, and Ubuntu couldn't do it. And um, that's something that was totally different, though, was like the technology landscape was different. And when um, Canonical tried it, I don't think products like Stripe really existed or certainly not at the scale that they do today. So it was like just having like some other company that made a product that allows you to build the thing that you want to build is a completely different game. Hmm. Yeah. Sometimes being too early to the game is a detriment. I I suppose that's where the luck comes in, right? Coming in at just the right time when the technologies are maybe aligning like stars and making it more possible than it was previously, even for for some people that do good work like Canonical. um, Sometimes it's just not quite the right time. Yeah, and and then especially in this landscape too, where something that I think um, all of us, as far as like people who build desktops are kind of working towards is like Wayland. And um, just the general theme of like sandboxing and containerization. And it's something that's been, you know, worked towards for years. And uh, we get a little bit closer each year and it's, it's still far off seeming, but it's, it's something that if we didn't start and we didn't have the ideas of where this should go and didn't start making that steady progress that, you know, it's not something that can be shipped right away. It's something that where you have to be looking far ahead. So how then do you and the team stay motivated long term, knowing some of these projects, you know, just just take a long time? I think you gotta bounce around, honestly. Like there are some things where it's like, um, you know, okay, I'm I'm working on this stuff where it's it's kind of a long game and it's it's not necessarily as exciting. And so I gotta have my projects that are like little wins. And so, um, you know, I, I work on those things and then I go, okay, um, now I want to work on like a small visual design refresh or, uh, maybe some different icons or, um, you know, some little things that are kind of exciting and fun or little bite size issues, little tweaks here and there, things that I can ship now. Um, so that way it's kind of like switching back and forth. So I'm not, I'm not always just like, okay, I'm working on this thing and it'll be great five years from now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Cause you need some immediate wins to keep, I guess, that energy up and that, uh, um, I don't know, to celebrate more often perhaps. <laughs> yeah. And I think to keep people engaged too, because, um, you know, it was something that we ran into, uh, I think 
within the last year where we'd see people on Reddit go, oh, elementary, that's definitely dead. There's there's nothing oh, wow. happening over there. Yeah. And, and we were like, what? You know, we're working every single day on stuff. Um, <laughs> and then you see like, oh, okay, well, it's because we're not shipping that often. And so we kind of changed the way our release cycle works. And so now um, we're pushing out little updates to things all throughout the life cycle of the operating system instead of just like delivering a product and then waiting two years and delivering another product. Sounds like a really delicate balance uh, because we were mentioning earlier, you know, wanting to only send something out there when it's ready. And yet I could see why that those little sort of external blips of, you know, sending stuff out there is helpful. How do you kind of match those two? You know, it sounds like a challenge. Yeah, I think um, the, the kind of way that we've dealt with it is we have things that are like, okay, we know this is a long-term goal and um, we know that this is something that we're going to kind of work on with the intention that it's not being shipped this cycle. And then um, we have other things that are like, oh, th- you know, there's no reason we can't ship this, this cycle. So um, it's just kind of like separating the two out and, and knowing which one a product is um, it really helps there. So same idea, like the small wins versus the, the, the big wins, right? Yeah, but I I think a really important part of it is like we were talking about before is kind of um, tightening the feedback loop from when someone reports an issue or has a feature request. And if it's something um, that doesn't require a whole new technology stack to develop, being able to go, oh, yeah, um, you know, we we can push that update out within like a month or whatever is is really big. And if it's like an issue report and you're able to fix it within like a day or two, like people love that. And it feels so good to be (laughs) able to like go, man, that's so cool that I was able to fix your thing and now you're using it. And then, you know, people are excited about it and. Like that, that just feels really good to be able to do things really quickly. I'm smiling over here and I, it, it wasn't even done to me, so <laughs> I can see why it feels good. <laughs> can you tell me a little bit more about the team that you're working with, with regularly? I mean, I mean, I know you have Cassidy who's sort of close to you, um, but there's a lot of people in the community that are putting some time into elementary as well. Um, what has that been like? Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure how much everybody knows, but, um, we, uh, have a couple people on payroll. Um, and, um, we, we've, our, our payroll's kind of gone back and forth. We've had some people, uh, that were on part time that, um, moved to doing like contracts and, um, you know, contracts come and go. And, and then, uh, we've done, uh, bug bounties also. So, um, it it can be kind of hard sometimes to separate as far as like who's being paid for what work and things like that. But um, I'd say that at any given time, there's probably um, 20, 30 active uh, developers in, in the community um, doing something. Um, we've got some um, people that are really longtime contributors like uh, Jeremy Wooten is our maintainer for files. And uh, I think he's like one of the only people that is like a dedicated maintainer for an app right now. So it's actually really cool <laughs> to have like, we know that no matter what, like Jeremy's going to keep files going. And and so it can, it can be really nice to uh, be able to count on that. But then we have um, like Corentin Noel is uh, one of uh, our longtime desktop developers and he is like all over the place and um, in a good way. Like, <laughs> you know, you never, uh, you never necessarily know what he's working on because he is always looking at like the next thing and knows like what the new technologies are and stuff. So that's really cool. Uh, cause he brings that insight back in and, and he's really good at working with upstreams and, um, he's actually done a lot of work, uh, where it's like, okay, well, in order to have this feature in our app, we need to build it in the upstream library. So I'm going to go up there for a couple months and work on it up there and then come back. So it, it's really cool to have people like that in the community. That sounds great. I would imagine having different types of personalities and different types of expertise and different types of ways that people work, uh, if you can manage that, uh, can all come around to be really beneficial. 
Yeah, definitely. I think that, um, you know, diversity is strength, absolutely. And trying to make everybody work the same way just wouldn't, it wouldn't help. So uh, I, I think it's nice that people are different and they have different ideas and different concerns. And I think it really shows uh, in the product when you have people that care about lots of different things. I would imagine, too, that that can sometimes be challenging to, you know, uh, I'm just trying to think like, you know, you, you let someone go work upstream for a few months and that's just what they want to do. And you just have to have faith that they're sort of doing the right thing. Um, does that present challenges sometimes? I would imagine it does. Um, you know, I'd say not as often as you'd think. I feel like, um, that our community is really good about building consensus and, um, I, I don't know how many times that we've really had like major conflicts or, or anything like that, uh, in recent history. So it seems to be going pretty well. And, and I think that, you know, everybody communicates, uh, really well, which is always super important and just making sure that everything's, everybody's on the same page about, uh, where we want to be is I think the most helpful thing and having kind of general themes, um, or like, um, I'm sure Cassidy would advocate for like personas, um, where you have like, okay, um, you know, let's make sure that we're keeping in mind how people who interact primarily with the keyboard think of this thing. And then let's also, uh, make sure we're keeping in mind like how this thing will work when all the applications are in sandbox containers and, you know, having, having kind of these, little themes that um, guide where we go, I think helps keep everything cohesive. That's a really nice way to think about it. Uh, and hadn't occurred to me before because we sort of, I don't know, lean on seeing uh, software in the way that we use it. But I've learned that repeatedly by simply, you know, throwing my laptop in front of someone else and just watching how they do things is always completely different than how I do it. So I love that idea of these profiles. Um, and, and I imagine that could be applied in more than just software as well. Yeah, I think so. I imagine that um, people use that in in lots of everyday scenarios. And I think personas is a pretty uh, widely used UX pattern, no matter what industry you're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I ask how... I don't know. It just seems to me from what I know of the ways that uh, you and the team work and just getting a chance to talk to you guys personally sometimes and hearing you on a, a variety of podcasts that you just, it seems like you bring a lot of heart to what you're doing and a lot of sort of, I don't know, humanity maybe to it. And so it's not, it doesn't seem like it's just about the software. It seems like it's more about the collaborations and and making people feel good about uh, every step of the way. I, I'm just curious like, how it seems like a deep part of your person, but how do you, how have you cultivated that with others? And, and I'm sure that gives back to you in many ways. Yeah, I guess um, I would say that is a big part of kind of the, I feel like brand identity is such a cold way to describe <laughs> something where like the goal yeah. is you want people to have a good time, you know, and if, if people aren't having a good time, then like, why are we even doing this? Mm. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, we, we want to be part of like when people interact with our, our brand accounts that it's this, um, definitely an idea of like, okay, people are having a good time or they're having a bad time. And like, how can we make sure that people are having a good time and, um, kind of looking at things that way. Um, I think in the way that people feel about what they're doing, uh, helps to, to help make those kind of decisions and leads to, um, Another another little Cassidy thing is he would probably say delightful moments <laughs> and uh, making sure that things are fun or that things feel good and, and when you're interacting with them and, and whether that's through the software or through interacting with another um, person in the community or through a brand account or an email or, or whatever, just kind of having that idea of people feeling good is, is I think, important. Yeah, I, th I think you nailed it when you said 
you know, uh, bringing heart to it. It's, it feels like often in our, you know, software is an easy place to, to be really cerebral, but, uh, it feels like that, the counterbalance of, of bringing some, some heart and some empathy to every single interaction within it, uh, it can't, can't do anything but be helpful. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny, like, as much as we like to think that um, as humans, we're, we're so in like our frontal cortex or whatever, you know, like, oh, mm-hmm. we're, we're so logical. But um, when it really comes down to it, like so much of how we interact with the world is how we feel about it. And how we feel can often override like the more logical parts of our brain. I would argue that design, you know, that's the very focus of design is to make people feel good about the things they're interacting with. Uh, I imagine you agree. Yeah, I would say that that's a big part of it. And um, you can kind of see how if uh, if your design doesn't make people feel good, how they'll kind of figure out a way to do what feels more comfortable or feels better or easier for them. And I think there's like that classic example of um, the photo where there's a walkway and there's some grass next to it and there's a path that people have walked through the grass. <laughs> you know? just kind of like, you know, this is your your design versus this is this is what feels natural for the user and, and where they wanted to go. Yeah, I, I think they call those desire paths, right? And I love that term because it sort of shows, well, this is what people want to do naturally. And so if your design is doing something different than that, then you're missing the mark. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, Cassidy's been diving into that a lot uh, recently with um, some user surveys and, and doing a little bit of research. And, um, you know, we're looking at, especially at how people, um, especially um, people who are used to the Linux desktop really want to uh, customize things and want to make things feel their own. And um, as software developers, that can be really difficult because that introduces some complexity and some kind of randomness or uncertainty into the software. And um, so we're kind of looking at ways of, okay, how can we make things feel more um, belonging to the person who's using the software, but in a way that is a little more known ahead of time so that we can kind of build and design around it. And so we're looking at things um, like uh, accent colors and um, making sure that we're uh, really designing around different font sizes and um, that people really want to do like a dark theme now. So we're looking into like, okay, well, how, how do we do, um, a dark theme in a way that doesn't really mess with application developers who are wanting to do their own, uh, unique visual design identities in their apps. And, and so just kind of thinking, um, through this thing of like, what we really don't want is to end up in a situation where we've done nothing to accommodate people who want it to feel their own. And so it's the most broken it can possibly be. Yeah, it sounds like a really challenging balance that uh, I would imagine is not, you know, it's not a certain thing to know where you should land in that balance. And I would imagine taking the approach that that you are with being careful and yet listening as well uh, is the right one, you know, to, to tread lightly, but also do things with intention. Yeah, you know, something that took us, I think, quite a few years to articulate was um, when to decide between whether something should be like a user setting or preference or not. And um, the the most recent iteration that we've landed on is that if it's something that is a design or engineering decision, that we shouldn't leave that up to the people using the software. Hmm. But if it's something that helps make the software more accessible to more people or more palatable to more people, then that's something that we want to um, enable people to to make things uh, the way that they need them to be in order to use the software. Those are nice lenses to look through, actually. If you wanted to send a question out there to the community, something you might like them to think about or something you want them to go see or maybe something to interact with, uh, what would you like to send out there? You know, something that that's been a really big topic um, for us for a really long time 
is um, kind of challenging people to financially support open source software. And, um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be elementary or elementary OS either. Like that's not even the thing. It's, you know, if you, uh, really benefit from some piece of open source software, then, um, try to find a way to, to support its development to make sure that its existence is continued. And, and so if, uh, if you haven't thought about that before and there's something that you really love, um, you should, you know, look into that and, and make sure that that thing continues to exist and continues to get developed. What does it mean when someone, uh, when someone does that? Like, what are the effects that happen on, on your end? What does it enable maybe is a way to look at it. Yeah. Um, for us, um, you know, when people pay for downloads of elementary OS, like that becomes my paycheck, you know, that's how I eat and pay rent and <laughs> all that stuff. Right. So, um, before, as we were kind of ramping the company up, um, this was something that I could only work on, um, after I got home from my day job. And, uh, if I didn't have any other obligations with family or friends or anything like that. And, um, you know, I, I'm fortunate enough, um, that, uh, I don't have any like really serious obligations as far as like family members who are ill or people that I have to support or anything like that. But there are a lot of people out there who do have those obligations and they would love to work on open source software, but they can't do it unless it's a job for them. And so making sure that, um, either like organizations who are empowered to do some hiring or, um, people who are struggling on the weekends, um, to try to, um, turn something from a hobby into a job. If we can support those people and empower them to, uh, lose the day job and, and make their career working on open source software, then I think everyone benefits there. Does it feel like that would make encouraging people to work on open source software not feel so much like uh, like a compromise or maybe like you know a side gig like you like was true for you previously yeah and you know it, it's definitely um so many things change when it goes from just a hobby to a career path and uh you know one one of those things is like if I wanted to go to a conference, I had to take that week off of work. And so that means like, um, do I have enough money to pay my bills if I do that? You know, uh, can I actually do that financially? And, um, not only that, but okay, now, uh, if I can do that, will the event sponsor me? Because maybe I don't have enough money to pay for my own travel to go there. And so going from that position as a hobby where it's like, maybe I just can't even participate, um, to now, uh, I'm in a position where it's like, this is my job to participate. And so, um, you know, getting together the funds as part of the company budget. And, um, I don't have to worry about taking the time off work and having that ability means that I can go interact with some people that are developing very important technologies and spend that time to bring maybe a different perspective or to take back home a lot of knowledge. Uh, and it really changes what gets delivered in a really big way. Sounds like a real catalyst to uh, improving, well, A, your, uh, you know, a developer's well-being uh, to not have to worry all the time about, you know, where they're going to spend their time and the compromises and, and uh, you know, if they're going to have food on the table, but also in accelerating ideas and uh, integrations and some collaborations and stuff. So, uh, yeah, what a catalyst to, to doing some amazing things. And if it's spread out throughout the users uh, widely, then it's it's actually not a big uh, hit for any one of them, but yet makes a massive difference on your end, I would imagine. Yeah. You know, um, the, the very first time that I went to uh, Ubuntu Developer Summit, um, I was in a position where um, I, I wasn't going to be able to go because that means that I would miss a paycheck that means that I wouldn't be able to pay rent. And, um, somebody else, 
uh, offered to sponsor me to be there. And, and he was like, wow. you know, how, how much do you need to, to be able to make it? And, um, so someone else's generosity absolutely changed my life because <laughs> oh, wow. I think that if I wasn't at that conference, then, um, I, I don't know if I would have ended up actually doing that contract work for Canonical and having the opportunity to get more involved with Ubuntu. And I think that I wouldn't be in the same place at all. So, uh, definitely if you can, if you can help somebody else and it doesn't have to be in such a big way, you know, that that's obviously a huge help, but, um, like you said, if it's spread out between a lot of people and a lot of people do a little bit, then you can absolutely change people's lives. The way I sometimes try to look at it, um, and maybe I'm in a, a certain position, but, uh, you know, I, as a photographer, I'm a freelancer and I use 100% open source software for the work that I do. Uh, so that enables me to make my own living off of, uh, how I'm using these tools. And so I try to sort of mentally just set aside a little tiny piece of what I'm taking home to try to give back because without those tools, I couldn't do the things I'm doing and especially not in the ways that I would like to do them. So, uh, it feels to me like it supports, you know, the, the, the people on the ground who are doing it. Uh, but it also supports the ideas that we believe in and the collaborations that, that we think should happen more in the world. So it feels like a really important thing. So if anybody can do it, uh, that would be great. And, and I'll commit actually to, uh, to giving a little bit this week too, uh, before this releases. So, uh, hopefully someone else can too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, um, for anybody that thinks that, you know, oh, I'm just one person, it's not that big of a difference. Um, I think the last time I checked the stats, we're at a little bit over, uh, 1% of the people who download elementary OS choose to pay anything for it. So that 1% of people, enables us to deliver it to the other 99%. Wow. So your small one-time contribution is is actually huge and and it allows a whole lot of people to access open source software that they never would have been able to before. The thing that's interesting to me is imagine what could happen with 2% or 5%, right? What would that change? Yeah, yeah, definitely uh, be able to expand our, our staff quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, and then just some some great catalyst to some great things. So let's let's try to make that happen collectively for all projects, really. Uh, Dan, if, uh, if you wanted to send people, where could they go to get in touch with you and get connected? Yeah, um, you know, I think I let my website expire. <laughs> so, so that's no you longer did, a good I checked. Way. <laughs> I'll have to go fix Maybe that. Maybe that's not the place. <laughs> um, but but uh, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. So um, I think the best way is, is to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Daniel Foray. On Twitter. Okay, great. And we'll we'll see what happens. Your website, maybe I'll nudge you here and there to try to get it back. Yeah. Uh, it just proves <laughs> to me that, that you're human, which is a great <laughs> thing. <laughs> uh, well, Dan, thanks so much for sitting down with me and having a chat. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show. Mm-hmm.